0: Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. and his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely.
1: I must break you. The guilty will be punished. My name is Sergeant... Andrew Scott Come on guys, don't do this If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy I don't think you like me grumpy And you go in pieces, asshole Let's kick some ass
2: Hello and welcome back to I Must Break this podcast, the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and on today's special interview episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with director and screenwriter Stephen Tolkien. But before we get to the conversation, I wanted to remind you all to please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe, We always appreciate the reviews, especially those five-star reviews. Those always help. Uh, Also, please be sure to check out the Facebook page for the show, I Must Break This Podcast. Here you can stay up to date on the show, the career of Mr. Dolph Lundgren, and other news regarding action cinema in general. So if you're not already following the page, please feel free to like it, share it, and continue being a fan and helping spread the word. Uh, Lastly, if you'd like to get in contact with me with ideas, Suggestions or thoughts on the show in general, you can take a look at the official web page for the show, which is I must break this podcast. Now, on to today's conversation. Uh, recently, I had the honor of speaking with Stephen Tolkien. Tolkien has been in the industry for almost 40 years with experiences in the realms of writing, directing, and producing. Early in his career, Stephen Tolkien worked for the renegade studio Canon Films and during his time with Canon, Tolkien had a hand in the rewrite of the 1987 cult Dolph classic Masters of the Universe. In fact, Stephen Tolkien was later tapped to write the unproduced sequel to Masters of the Universe, which sadly never fully got off the ground. Tolkien also went on to write the 1990 adaptation of Captain America for Menahem Golan, Now, the 1990 Captain America film is one that uh, has always been fairly near and dear to me. I've mentioned it on the show before, but outside of Mr. Dolph Lundgren, Captain America has always been my favorite comic book hero. And this was long before Disney and the Marvel Cinematic Universe were dominating Hollywood. While the film's shortcomings are largely evident, especially in terms of its budgetary limitations, the 1990 Captain America film is one that I've always enjoyed ever since I first saw it as a little kid. Similar to the Masters of the Universe movie, my expectations at the time weren't exactly huge and I really didn't have much to compare either of these movies with. So seeing my heroes like Captain America and He-Man brought to life on screen was pretty surreal. Tolkien later went on to find a home in the world of television and TV movies where he's flourished ever since. In this conversation, Tolkien and I chat his experiences working with canon, as well as his experiences with Masters of the Universe and what could have been with the sequel. And of course, I pick his brain quite extensively on his script for Captain America. Stephen Tolkien was an amazingly kind and open individual who was a real treat to speak with, and who is still working to this day with plenty more projects in the pipeline. So, for your listening pleasure, is my conversation with Stephen Tolkien on I Must Break This Podcast.
0: Well, again, first of all, thank you so much for, for taking the time to uh, to speak with me today. I, I really do appreciate it. And like I was telling you, I mean, your filmography is extremely impressive, but um, there are two films in particular on your filmography that uh, really helped shape my childhood when I first watched them oh. uh, years ago.
3: So thank you. Well then you had you must have had a fairly demented childhood but
0: <laughs> I like to think I had a pretty awesome childhood but I mean I mean if you look at films like uh, Masters of the Universe and Captain America I mean it's kind of wild to think that okay nowadays you know comic book based movies are I mean that's what's driving the box office that is what is you know leading Hollywood but back then in 1987 1989 when uh, when you wrote those particular films they were still kind of a, a taboo in Hollywood. We, I mean, of course, we had Batman and we had Superman, but we really didn't have comic-based films like we do nowadays. Back then,
3: we were fringe. I mean, since then, the nerds won. Yeah, the nerds, <laughs> the nerds took over the castle, right? Yeah, and and um, I love that. Um, I, I was, you know, that was that was that's a triumph. You know, that Comic Con went from being this weird, fringy thing. To being the center of the universe it's gorgeous I, I i'm not i wasn't i was never exactly the comic book kid growing up i read at summer camp i would spend hours lying in my bunk you know in the warm bunkhouse reading two things superman and archie and i, I didn't like batman very much because he didn't have superpowers i couldn't figure out well he just kind of jumped I just, i couldn't get behind it you know um, I really wasn't exposed to Spider-Man. I don't think I'd ever heard of Captain America It simply didn't cross my consciousness as a kid in the 60s. But Superman and Archie, I read every single one. You know, that was my thing.
0: Well, and I mean, speaking of Superman, I mean, that, that's an excellent segue because some of your early writing gigs were for Canon Films. But interestingly, this was at the, uh, the tail end of their run. And I mean, yes. any any fan of film, okay, is familiar with uh with the notorious uh, Canon films. I mean uh the 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 film that you were uh the the documentary Electric Boogaloo where you were interviewed. I mean that is I think an amazing documentary but yes. I, I always I always get the impression that canon films were kind of like this wild, wild west in a sense. I mean it had to be pretty amazing
3: working for them, right? I was a young screenwriter and they hired me and I had children, and I supported myself with Canon Films when my children were very, very little. It was impossible to get paid by them. Absolutely impossible. Uh, they, they, they would just never, their default position was screw you. And um, and so finally it got to the point where the only way you get paid is my agent would call them and say, script's in my office. Send a messenger with a check, and that's how I got paid. Otherwise there was no getting paid. And once, before we did that, I had handed in a script, and they wouldn't pay, they wouldn't pay, they would just simply no. Well, yeah, well, whatever, maybe. And um, and my wife went to their offices and walked into the head of the the office of the head of the company. It was Chris Pierce who ran the place. And walked past the secretary with my with my four year old and my nursing infant and nursed the baby on the desk chair in this guy's office till he gave her a check. <laughs> <laughs> it was about six hours. She sat there for six hours while the kids played and she nursed the baby and hung out. And nobody, and they didn't try to make her leave. They just understood, and finally someone came with a check. That's how canon worked. They were—I'm going to not put too fine a point on it. They were horrible. <laughs> that's another story.
0: Well, and I was—I was, I was going to ask if uh, if you could divulge a because it seems like everybody uh, has their own canon film story, um, and it sounds like you obviously have quite a few, that being one of them, obviously. <laughs> so.
3: I've told many of them many times. So I don't, I may, I'm trying to think, I don't think there's anything I can tell you that I haven't told before that, um, but I will tell you one story that has to do with the sequel to Masters of the Universe. I've told this many times, so it, it, it may not be original to your podcast. I'll try to tell it succinctly. Developed a story They came to me to do, you know, I did. I, I did a rewrite on Masters. Let me go all the way to the beginning. They sent me the script for Masters. Um, it needed a rewrite because Gary Go- Gary Goddard, the child molesting Gary Goddard, I will just say, um, had written a script for them, which they hated. G- David O'Dell had written a lovely script and the director, Gary Goddard, had rewritten it. And Gary Goddard is many things, but not a writer. And um, I read it and I was kind of horrified. And I said, well, what about that other, what did you start with? And they gave me David O'Dell's script, and it is magnificent. It was mag, It was much better than the finished movie. It was lyrical and moving and funny and adventurous. I mean, this is the man who wrote The Dark Crystal, right? Absolutely gorgeous. First thing I did was call David O'Dell, whom I'd never met. I got hold of him and told him it, so I loved it. And then I said to Cannon, oh, my goal here is simply to make David O'Dell's script work for whatever Gary needs, right? I'm here to make that script work for this director, right? And they embraced that totally because they also loved David Odell's script. And David and I bonded over this, right? And uh, But he warned me. He just gave me a warning. Okay, well, you'll see what you're going to get. And I did a, an extensive rewrite that everybody embraced. And then Gary just shot his own script. He just every night would issue pages back to the script that he'd written. And nobody at canon stopped him. And the movie was essentially unwatchable. And uh, uh, that's why, because Gary was a bully and um, completely not, if not the slightest interest or openness to critique or just no, forget critique, collaboration, discussion. Let's get into this. Let's make it work. You know? Now, what, what contributions to the film did you, did you add? I mean, I, I, my contributions have to do with, with uh, Courtney Cox and, uh, and, and, and Robbie O'Neill, um, and, um, who, uh, who I love, who's fabulous, fabulous guy. I never really got to know Courtney, but Robbie ended up directing an episode of a show that I, that I, that I created. And I just cannot say enough about what a wonderful person, beautiful artist he is. And, um, uh, and he's an amazing actor. He gave it up because he wanted to be a director, but he wanted to stay an actor. He would have been stayed amazing at that too. And um, and um, uh, so I would say any contributions I made would really be to their scenes, which Gary maybe had less interest in messing with because he was not so interested in the human characters. Um, and um, But I haven't seen the movie in so long that I don't really know what I added or not. I saw it once,
0: once. I, I will say with, you know, with regard to the inclusion of those particular characters, the earthlings, if you will. I mean, and I've said this multiple times before, you know, it seems like the the film, especially by like the hardcore Masters of the Universe fans, they have always been kind of uh, put off by the fact that it takes place on Earth? You know, why is this film about uh, about these people from Eternia um, going to Earth of all of all places? And obviously, you know, the budget, it would have been impossible budget, to do. Budget, yeah. sure budget. And it you know what? A, and, yeah. and not a bad idea. It, and, you know, to go along with that, yeah, not only, in my opinion, as a little kid, I always thought this as well. Not only was that not a bad idea, but, I mean, you know, when you have a script based on this, this franchise and toy line that is so otherworldly and you have these characters that are so larger than life from other planets, you need, in my opinion, that human component. You need that, that vessel for the audience to not only uh, relate to but to kind of go on the adventure with. And so, yeah, the characters of uh, Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan McNeil, I always felt that they, uh, they, they serviced that perfectly.
3: Oh, yeah, and such wonderful actors. I mean, God, you know? And and, you know what they got? They got a great cast. I mean, Meg Foster and, for God's sake, Frank Langella, you know? And I, I love Dolph Lundgren. I think he's great, you know?
1: The fantasy characters that started it all. The biggest selling toy product ever created. The most successful TV cartoon series. Masters of the Universe now takes a giant leap forward into a live action motion picture starring the sensation of Rocky Four, Dolph Lundgren in The Live Action Adventure, Masters of the Universe. The fantasy becomes a reality.
0: Yeah, well, that was going to be my question. I mean, because when you were brought on board to To do the rewrites, I mean, I imagine Dolph was already attached at that point. So were you oh, writing? Yes.
3: Oh, I came on. Okay. I came on while they were in prep. Okay, they were prepping the movie. They had all the actors. I had I had long meetings with Meg Foster and Frank Langella about their roles. It was it was thrilling mm-hmm. for me, thrilling. Mm-hmm. And they were You know, they they comported themselves magnificently in this crazy thing. Although you know the, the everything was so low budget around them. Although interesting, look at who cut it. I mean, Anne Coates was the editor. She edited Lawrence of Arabia, for God's sake, you know? I mean, yeah. it's phenomenal. And she's, what a, what a, she was amazing. I got to hang out with her a tiny bit. I just loved her.
0: Well, and I've, I've said it before. I mean, look, I've I've watched a lot of Canon films, a lot. And I will, <laughs> I will say, out of all the films that Canon has done, I always felt that, and obviously I'm a little biased, too, I'll say that, but I feel that. Masters of the Universe is actually one of their best-looking films.
2: I mean, if you really? compare
0: Masters of the Universe to, uh, I don't know, Death Wish or Missing in Action or Ninja 3, The Domination, any of the you know crazy titles they did, Master of the Universe, I think, looks the most polished.
3: Interesting. I, I haven't seen it in so long. I, I truly can't comment. I just, I just, it was a dispiriting experience watching it for sure, although I did not have a feeling of authorship about it. It was more like, Really, my feeling about Masters is just like I was, you know, I was a crew member. I passed through. I added my little bit. They took what they took. They didn't take what they didn't take. And it was just a, a, a fun adventure in my lifetime, you know, not something that I consider in any way mine. And that I have to be very clear about that. I, I, I passed through the experience of the making of that movie. I had no, no feeling of it being mine.
0: Well, I mean, okay, but you, you brought it up, so I have to ask because I've always I've heard various rumblings online about the the sequel. So, assuming that the sequel did get made and they did use your particular script, what would uh, what we <laughs> what would we have been able to see? What did we uh, I, don't <laughs> I don't remember much.
3: I don't remember much. I was working closely with the m- magnificent Albert Pune, whom I adore. And um, and his team, and I don't remember much about the story. Um, I had, you know, as usual, craziness, you know, I had four days to write an outline and all that. But this is this is the story. They brought me on because I think, first of all, I think they would have gone back to David, but I'm sure David was like sick of them and, you know, didn't want anything to do with them at that point. So they went to me because I think they felt that if if Gary had shot my script, they would have had a better movie, right? They liked it very much. They wanted him to shoot it, but he just refused. Uh, my and by my script I mean my, in, my 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 uh, adaptation of David Odell's script to the realities of their production, right? And and with an addition of a lot of stuff about the kids that I really got into because I loved them. So anyway, and they felt I think there was a feeling that oh if only we had done that. So when they had a sequel, they came to me. I was you know the natural thing to come to, and it was a good gig for me. And I wrote an outline. Um, kind of all in a I remember staying up like night after night in the office of the building there finishing it drinking as I remember Irish breakfast tea to keep myself awake and I wrote a script and the heart of the script was a relationship he, he man comes to earth and I had at that point directed a short subject in which my production designer was this fabulous woman named Liz Young who lived in a loft in downtown LA and was in a wheelchair she had had an accident in her teens and she was she didn't didn't have the use of her legs and she was in a wheelchair and she was amazing and could get anywhere. I was an artist and I just thought of the world of her and I thought, wow, what an inspiration she is. So I came up with the idea, which they, everybody embraced, which Albert and totally went for, was that He-Man comes to earth and he falls in. they did it on earth again with this woman who is a, uh, an artist who is in a wheelchair. And the limits of He-Man's power and he can't fix her, but you know, then you you know, you she realized she doesn't need to be fixed and all this stuff. It was a it was a a very, very, very early idea of making putting a dis- person with a disability at the center of a movie. Maybe the it would have been the first. Anyway, everyone embraced it. Menachem was all into it and and they cast they got all the way to casting. Um uh they cast a woman in the role and she was very, very committed, and she committed to spending the six weeks of prep in a wheelchair and not getting out of the wheelchair, right? And I would see her all over the Canon buildings. There were two buildings on either side of Wilshire Boulevard, and on um, um, Sam standing on either side of Wilshire Boulevard. And they and she, I would see her getting in and out of cars and with the wheelchair and moving around and going up and down ramps and figuring out every single way to negotiate everything. It was an amazing piece of, of, of actress um, commitment, right? And uh, so Albert and I are working on the movie and having a great time planning it. And I don't even know if this one I'd written a script. They, they ordered it on the outline. I was working on the script. I don't think I ever wrote a full script. Maybe. No, I did. I did. Just remembered I did. And we're working on the movie and getting it going and working on the other casting. And we get a call that Yoram wants to see us, Yoram Globus. So we cross Wilshire Boulevard to the north and go over to the other side. And we sit down in his office, and Albert goes, like, just, you know, stay cool or whatever. Albert's amazing. And we sit there, and Yoram, Menachem had gone out of town, so Yoram wasn't charged. He'd gone to Israel. Yoram wasn't charge. I think make make a movie, so extendedly. And he looks at us. He's glowering, like just glowering and frowning and scowling. And he puts his hands on the desk, and he leans forward, and he says to us, Nobody wants to see a cripple. Just like that. And he said, take her out of the wheelchair. And that's it. So the heart and soul went out of it totally. So Albert goes to the actress, finds her, you know, laboriously figuring out how to get in and out of her, I think Volkswagen it was, with the wheelchair and tells her, we're changing it. Uh, there's no wheelchair anymore. She's not going to be in the wheelchair. A woman was like, oh, damn it. I was really looking forward to that. She went skiing that weekend, fell, broke both her legs, and was in a wheelchair for six months. You can't make that shit up. You know what I mean? Anyway, as far as, I mean, that in itself is the whole story. But the rest of the story is, at that point, we proceeded to make the movie. Now, this is why this whole thing about the Laird Hamilton version, I don't know where that is in the timeline, because I'll tell you my memory of the timeline. Albert proceeded to make the movie with this kind of, sucked out version where she wasn't in a wheelchair. I forget. Ex- I even completely forgotten how we adapted the movie, what we did. It's a, It's at, at that point, the curtain falls in my memory in terms of what I did. Maybe Albert took it over and did that other version with the football player. It's possible that I didn't. I don't know. I know this. The toy company, which toy company, which company is it? Um, Mattel. Mattel. Mattel had a department for dealing with media, Right. Every day, Albert notes. Um, no, he wouldn't wear this kind of medal. No, He-Man wouldn't say that. No, you can never show she doing this. No, you can never show that. And finally, to their credit, Menachem and Yoram called them and said, you know what? Enough. We're not making the movie. You're too much meddling. We just won't make it. It's too much trouble. And the karmic upshot of that, I heard, is that Mattel instantly fired that entire department, all the people who've done that, but it was too late. They just didn't make the movie. And that's what I heard happened to the sequel.
0: Interesting. Yeah. It's it's really kind of wild how there's so many stories regarding this sequel. I mean, obviously there's multiple drafts that uh that, that were written.
3: And then Have you read uh, drafts
0: of it? Unfortunately I haven't. And if, if you still have your draft, I
3: would love to if read it. I actually. you know what? I have an attic that has been filling up since we moved into the house in nineteen eighty seven, which is right around these events, right? Uh huh. And I'm not i I'm not a hoarder, because the downstairs is clean as a whistle. But up in that attic, you know, it needs it needs an A and E reality show to come in. And um and I believe that I will find the script or outline for it in there. And people have been asking me for the this. There's a couple of people have been asking me for the Captain America script forever. And if it's it's in the attic somewhere, and one of these days, I will have the time and breath in my life to go up there and find it. And if I do, I will. I will find the Masters of the Universe sequel for you and I will give it to you and you can make whatever use of it you will. I remember being very, very, very pleased with with my kooky little story about He-Man and the girl in the wheelchair.
0: Yeah, that would be amazing. Well, because, I mean, it's gone on record, I think, that uh, Albert Pune was able to salvage what had been developed for the Masters of the Universe sequel, as well as the Spider-Man movie. And he was able to salvage the sets and the costumes and everything for his uh, movie uh, Cyborg. cyborg. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Have you talked to Albert?
0: I haven't uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Albert. I've reached out to him, actually, but I haven't spoken to him,
3: actually. He is. uh, There are some health issues there. I'll just say that. So that may be why. I love. I talked to him about two years ago. I I just, just a fabulous person. Just such love of film. And, you know, he's fabulous. Just a beautiful guy. Beautiful person.
0: Well, and I was actually fortunate back when uh, I think it was back in 2011. I did I was able to reach out to him, and I did get this is actually an excellent segue because he was selling his director's cut of uh, the Captain America film, and so uh-huh. I did reach out to him, and I did get a copy of that, and he did sign it for me. And so, I mean, looking at that film, I mean, look, I I would be um, <laughs> I would be I would be kicking myself if I didn't ask you about Captain America. Oh and yeah. When we first when we first got in contact, I mean, I told you of my appreciation for the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean I let me just say this, Mr. Tolkien. I love this movie. I've always <laughs> been ever since I was a little kid, and this is the honest to God truth. Um, but uh, I I always tell my children that uh, I'm the OG Cap fan because back before Marvel was dominating the box office and Captain America was, you know, everyone's favorite, um, he was not, at least in my opinion, in my social circle, he was not the the, the cool superhero I think that he is nowadays. And so as a little kid, you know, again, we had Michael Keaton's Batman, we had uh, Christopher Reeve's Superman, but we didn't have much in terms of cinematic superheroes. And so, when I first saw the Captain America movie, I mean, I can look at it now through adult eyes and I can, I, you know, I can certainly see its shortcomings, but I will say when I saw it as a little kid, I didn't have much to, uh, to stack it up against, to compare it to. And so for me, it was amazing. I mean, I rented that movie on VHS ad nauseum. It is, I think, considering what everyone was going through, because I've heard various stories you, in my opinion i think you guys pulled off a uh a really cool little movie
1: You get your guinea pig. Happens to be the best damn candidate out of 600 volunteers. A secret experiment gave one man the strength of a hundred. The rest of the world is just codenamed Captain America. And the power to save millions. The Jerry's had an experimental rocket ready to fire at a target somewhere in the United States. Only he could defeat a superhuman madman. They got a fella called the Red Skull heading up their outfit. All we can hope to get in there is one good man. Saving the world left him trapped in an icy grave Until fate released him to finish a battle started decades ago Yeah, he's still alive We don't know where he is or who he is Now an evil genius is on the verge of global domination Captain America, you gotta help us And only Captain America can stop him Ronnie Cox, Ned Beatty, Darren McGavin Kim Gillingham, Scott Pollan as the Red Skull, and Matt Salinger as the Marvel Comics hero, Captain America.
3: Well, I will say that for me, the equivalent movie is Journey to the Sand of the Earth. The movie that, that that I couldn't rent it on, you know, had to, you had to see it when you could see it, you know, because you couldn't, there were no VHS, there was no way to see it on, on demand. But Journey to the Sand of the Earth completely dominated my imagination in my childhood. And when I saw it, in my twenties, I couldn't believe what a bad movie it is. But <laughs> it 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 absolutely just filled my head and changed my life. Have you ever seen it? The old the old fifties journey oh, to the yes. end of the earth?
0: Yeah. Yes, yes.
3: And I mean incredibly fun, but also a bad movie. Um I'm very happy that you like Captain America. I will say my experience was this. I needed money. I was a, a you know, a young screenwriter and I got asked to write this movie. Um and I was excited to be able to write a movie. There was an existing script by what's his name, Larry something, that had a couple of pieces in it that that I took. Um, it was a, just a different direction than they wanted to go, and I um, and I was not familiar with Captain America. I was not a superhero fan, as I said. I was I was DC, not Marvel, if anything. And um and I liked Superman when I was ten, but I I I did not had not remained that. Um and I was cynical and i was not idealistic or you know i didn't i wasn't I, I don't know i read it read the comic books i read a bunch and i said i c- could not see how to do it straight i just could not see how to do it straight i'm going to cut slightly ahead of the game and say when i saw the new version with chris evans i said well that's how you do it straight and i love love the new version love i mean love and I wanted to call the writers whom I do not know and say, guys, I, I I was so the wrong writer for it 20 years ago. And you guys are so the right writer for it. But back to back to my story. And I because I really wasn't the right writer for it, but I wanted to do it um, because it was a job and it was fun. And I and it was like very likely to get made. Um, so I read the, the comic strips and I was going, how do I do this? I don't believe in this this sort of patriotic superhero thing and it's just so innocent and gung-ho and I just don't feel it. And I was, you know, it didn't fit my politics, although it's not political. It didn't feel like it fit my my politics and I just couldn't understand it at all. And I was driving through LA and this Gil Scott Heron song came on called Winter in America. Do you know the song? I'm sure you don't. No. (laughs) And it was all about, it was all about, it's winter in America and all, and there's a lyric and all the heroes have been killed or betrayed. That's it. And all the heroes have been killed or betrayed. And suddenly I saw the entire movie. I saw the entire movie. And so I said, there is a way to write a leftist superhero movie. There is a way, right? So I did it. I don't know if you ever felt the leftist politics in it, but that's the point. And Menachem said it has to be Italy for reasons that nobody ever, ever, ever knew you know, so it became an Italian fascist rather than Nazis and all that, right? But I, there was one Captain America comic, which I'm sure you've read, where he gets frozen in ice and comes back in the 60s, right? Yeah, and yeah. So I made it, well, he comes back in the 90s, right? So instead of it being Captain America walking around and seeing hippies and going, you know, what's wrong with them? It was Captain America walking around seeing yuppies and going, what's wrong with them? Nobody has an idealism, nobody cares. You know what I mean? That was the idea, it was. It was a completely different take. So I said, well, that's a story I can tell because it becomes a story about now, right? So everything grew out of that. And then the idea that it was the the implanting of the microchip and somebody controlling the American president, that may have come from the earlier draft, probably not. But it was all about, it was all about, all about a fascist takeover of America, right? About turning Ronnie Cox into a tool of fascism. Well, you can see there's a certain resonance to the present day from that, right? Um, and so because we came very, 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 very close, and I actually believe it's parallel because I actually think that the Russians did plant, it, an effectively a microchip in Trump's head to, 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 uh, to guide him to leading America to totalitarianism. So the movie's come true. <laughs> we narrowly escaped that bullet, very, very narrowly, and we may not escape it yet. So, um, that was what I was writing about, and that with that fuel, I think I wrote the script in a week and a half, and it all kind of just came together and the italians and the, and his childhood as in his little boy, and he was taken by the fascists and bent into something evil that there was something good inside the red skull and that and dr Vasari and with the you know the, the whole the whole idea that that the red skull and Captain America were both. Bent by the same hand of evil and all that. that that all came very, very quickly once I knew what I was saying. once you know were what you're saying,
1: they writing, were brothers.
3: they were brothers right Once you know what you're saying, it comes easy, and it just flooded out of me, right and i was i was i was I was dazzled by the reaction to it because um and this is the best thing about the entire experience for me. It goes without saying was getting to know and hang out with. And become close to Stanley. That was everything. Now, Stanley in those days was not what he is now. Stanley was a was a cult figure, not a figure of universal stardom. You know, he was a cult figure, not a not a megastar. And um but I gotta tell you, he was one of the great people I've ever met in my life by any standard, not only in terms of his artistic genius, but just as a human being, one of the great, generous souled people I've ever met. And he said to me. This is this script is genius. I I I I it's you know the best script ever written of any of my blood. I mean he's just he could not say enough. And a for a young writer this was amazing. And the reaction from the actors Melinda Dillon at that point was at the height of everything. You know she was is a Spielberg. You know what I mean that she that Melinda Dillon who I was completely in love with from Close Encounters. She was my favorite actress in the world. That she was in it and she came up to me and kissed me on the cheek and said you're a genius. I get called a genius. Maybe it's the only time I've ever been called a genius. Really, that's it, Stanley and Melinda Dillon. That's it. The two times in my life, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, am am an above average writer. I'm, I have, I have, I have, I have ability. I'm talented. I can do it. I have a career. You know, there's a reason for it. But, but that script elicited comments from those two people that, that you know, that that I, that I have not deserved and have not heard, right? And the other, I mean, the the, the the team that he got, there was something about that script that touched a nerve in people. I think they liked its politics. People liked its politics. They liked it how, how atypical it was to the usual superhero movie. They shared my feelings about straight superhero movies, feelings which were, I must underline, mistaken. I was wrong, Sean. I was wrong. <laughs> I was the wrong writer for the project. Right? You know,
0: I, I, I don't think so. Because, you know, okay, if you, look at the, if you look at the film nowadays and you compare it, I mean, it's a different version of Captain America. But the one thing that I've always enjoyed about it is, okay, yeah, there's, there's some criticisms that, uh, okay, uh, Captain America seems to be running from his attackers. and Yes. He does, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't wear the costume throughout the entire second act. However, this is how I interpreted it and I don't know if if you did it the same way. I mean, but okay, first of all, okay, this was the early 90s, late 80s. So, movies around that time were still movies based on comic books were still kind of in that that phase where they were sort of embarrassed to be based on comic books. You couldn't have him running around in that red, white and blue the entire movie. At least that's how I interpreted it. But the other that's way correct. I the other way I interpreted it was okay, you have you have a a, a Steve Rogers who, is, who has this innocence and this uh, naivete about himself to where he almost feels, himself, he almost views himself as being unworthy of living up to the mantle and wearing the costume. And that's how I interpret it, as he was this guy who he didn't look upon himself as being, um, as being the hero that he needed to be. And so by the end of the movie, when he puts on the costume again, he's thinking, okay, you know what? I've got to do this. That's how I interpreted it. Um,
3: I like that. I'll go with yeah. that. I think that's good. Okay. <laughs> I think that's good. I, you know, I really want you to read the script. I, I, want, I would love to read the script. You, you know, the movie is not the script for a few reasons. There are many, many, many diversions from what I wrote. I don't remember what they are. I just remember going through that experience. One is, Albert had less money than he needed, right? So he had to make alterations as he went along. He was away in Yugoslavia making the movie after saying this movie has to be Italy, I have to shoot in Italy. Then they shot in Yugoslavia. We bent the whole story around Italy and then it wasn't, wasn't shot there. Although Albert did a great job with locations. They look gorgeous. And um, so there he is in Yugoslavia. I'm not there. I was actually in Russia of all things, working on another project for part of the time he was there. I was on the set. The only time I was on the set was the day I shot my scene where I played the photographer at the wedding. Right. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask
0: you about
3: that. Yeah, and that was in that was shot somewhere in South Bay. LA. We'll talk about that, but that was a very fun day. But um, um, so they were in Yugoslavia, and so he didn't have me to like work on the changes with him, and and so um, he, he 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 the script had to be altered as it went along for budget reasons that that you know were inevitable, and just a lot changed, and also the script was too long so in the cutting things had to be lost and that's something that's 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 on me that's my bad i i just learned since that scripts need less than you think they need and it's better to rewrite them in the in the script than stage than in the computer in the editing sometimes although editing can be great obviously um so uh so it, it it is not the movie i wrote but i have a feeling even if they had shot the movie i wrote i might have the same problems with it um and uh um And yeah, he runs from his attackers. I can't, I want to read the script to see if I had, if I did. I've I've read recently a review where someone says, you know, he pretends to be sick twice in the movie or something like that. I have no recollection recollection of writing that. And I'd be very curious to find the script and find out whether that was me or something that they did for, for some exigency or other in the course of, I don't know. I don't know. Matt, again, lovely guy, got to know him pretty well. Spoken to him a bit through the years, Matt Salinger. Um, he may have been he he was he he was the right choice for the script I wrote, right? A more introspective uh, Steve, you know what I mean? A more um, whatever it is. He, he but he wasn't. He's he, he, he wasn't. He, he and I were both not exactly the right match for the material. But he was a lovely actor and did a great job with what it was, you know.
0: Well, and I mean, I know that this was, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that this was intended to be like a really big theatrical release. And then suddenly the budget is dwindled and the the film had to be simplified. And then unfortunately, despite, because I remember being a little kid, I remember seeing the the poster for the movie in uh, theater lobbies. And I remember it was in uh, a bunch of trade magazines that were, uh, you know, regarding the, uh, the the, the film's production because I, I picked up an issue of uh what was it? Cine Fantastique, I believe it was. And so it was uh they were they were hyping and promoting the, the Dick Tracy movie and uh uh you know of course Batman and Ninja Turtles and Captain America was in there and then it just sat and
3: Because people saw it. It <laughs> sat because then people saw it.
0: Okay. So
3: so oh my god, me, you were you were how me... old when when you when, when you first saw it?
0: Okay, well, okay, so if I go back, um, when I saw the posters in theater lobbies, I was eight, but I was not able to finally see it because it got released to VHS in the summer of ninety two. So I was ninety- ten years old. You were I ten was years, old. years old when I finally was able to see it. But I will say too, it was of course my love of Captain America and this movie that made me want to be Captain America for Halloween that fall, and,
3: <laughs> and
0: around that time, I mean, if you can go back this far, I mean, we didn't have the cool uh, Halloween costumes that the kids have nowadays with the you had to make my, it. We
1: my
0: yeah my my mom had to make this thing so wonderful. Yeah, but okay, so the screenings the, the film is screened, I imagine, and you <sighs> you see it. What uh, what were your reactions when you saw oh, the final cut?
3: I, I was about to answer that. So I went okay. to see it with a couple of friends, a bunch of friends actually, a whole pack of friends, many of whom were sort of in the Cannon family. Like we all sort of went to the screening together. It was at the Directors Guild Theater, the old Directors Guild Theater on Sunset. I, I remember it with, with, with frightening clarity. And I saw the movie, and it ended, and there was a sushi bar next door, and my my friends, I remember exactly who they were had to lift me by my arms out of the seat, help me up the aisle, practically carry me next door and pour sake down my throat. I remember literally being held and my head tilted back and somebody taking a glass of cold sake and pouring it down my throat to revive me.
0: (laughs) So, okay, so this is interesting to me. So like, okay, looking at your script for the film and what was ultimately shot, I guess, why were you disappointed? Or better yet, what were you hoping would, uh, would make it to screen and was unfortunately cut? Because I imagine, I imagine your script had to be simplified because Albert and company didn't have the budget to pull it uh, off. So, uh, so what was cut?
3: It's, it, it's not about cut. It's not about what was missing. It's not at all about that. Um, I, 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 you know, I, 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 by that point, I'd already made my own, directed my own thing. I knew everything there. I knew all about having to cut stuff and, you know, you make the movie. I knew by then that the movie you write is not the movie you shoot, and the movie you shoot is not the movie you cut, right? That that's, that, that process is a change. You make three movies. You write one, you shoot another one, and you edit another one. Three separate movies. No, it wasn't that. I did not feel, I will tell you the thoughts that were not going through my head. He fucked up my script. No. That was not going through my head. um he did a terrible job with it. No, that is not going through my head. What went through my head is it's just a terrible movie. I didn't blame Albert. I think I probably blamed myself. I saw that the entire story was preposterous, and i i and and I think probably more than anything, the cheesiness. Forced on the movie by the budget, the 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 rocket that lands in Washington and the completely completely implausible and unconvincing and I would say even un unprof, unprofessional is the wrong word because I don't want to say anything to cast shade on Albert who I love and admire the 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 incomplete the incomplete effects the, the 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 insufficient visual effects, right? Left it in the realm, unfortunately, through no fault of Albert's, in the realm of the cheesy, right? And yeah. there is, and then there is Scott Pollan, who I, another person I became friends with and stayed friends with for years after that. Fabulous actor, fabulous guy, right? The cheesiness of the Red Skull makeup, in spite of the fact of how fabulous Scott was in the role. Um, and the also... It was very, very complicated. It wasn't exactly—it's hard to recall the things from the past that were being echoed in the present. And when he goes home, it's hard to know that this is the same woman he's talking to, and all these things. Which, as a screenwriter, I would better address now. So, at the end of the day, I would say I wouldn't have been paralyzed to the point of being unable to get out of my chair and have to have alcohol poured down my throat to, to revive me if I didn't feel that the fault was mine.
0: Well, I, I will tell you again, again, uh, I, I hate putting the, you, you putting the blame on yourself uh, re- regarding a lot of this, but I will, I will say again, sure. Scott Pollan's red skull um, is, he has a red skull for maybe five minutes of the movie. But again, as a little kid watching this, I remember thinking to myself, well, this is what Captain America and the Red Skull would look like in real life. Like, if, you know what I mean? Like if if they were going to, you know, transplant this and put this into the real world, you know, a talking skull that is red, eh, that's going to look a little silly. This is how it would look in the real life. And obviously they've, they've been able to uh, adjust to that and make it work nowadays. But again, for me, Mr. Tolkien, back in uh, 1992 when I saw it, it was acceptable for me. Because, I, I mean, I remember thinking to myself, well, you know what? If, if they came out of the comic book pages, this might be how it would look. This is, you know, acceptable
3: for a movie. So. Oh, I like that. I like that. You know, you know. I feel that Albert. I've never talked to him about this. You know, how did you feel about the movie? I mean, the beauty of Albert is he's the most positive person. He is like, he just he loves being on set. He loves working with the actors. He loves the pros. He gets frustrated with things not having enough money and movies that don't get made and all that. But he just, he's such a, he's such a wonderful um, uh, team spirit. He's just, he's got fantastic team spirit and loves the art and craft of film so much, you know? So, but I never asked him what he thought about it and what he felt about the ways in which it fell short, you know? And I would hate to think that he would he- hear this and think that I held anything against him. I, I, he, he directed with such verve and vigor and joy all the way through, and that's why I that's why I take it as much on me as on anything else. I'm just going to say I'm going to split this with Menachem Golan, the problem, you know, and leave and leave Albert uh, leave Albert in the clear. This is what I also learned. Sometimes scripts that everybody loves that read magnificently that are these fantastic reads that are written in this way that makes people just you know love the read of them does not mean it's going to be a good movie. And I remember reading, I was working with Arnold Copelson in the early 90s and they were doing The Fugitive and I read the script for that, for The Fugitive, you know, the one that was, all, that was made with uh, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, right? And I read it and I was like, what? What? Nothing happens. He chases him and they confront and it's over. It's like, what's the movie? There's no complexity. And then I saw the movie, which was exactly the script and it blew me away. It was a huge lesson to me. The fabulous literary script with all the wonderful turns and this and that and flourishes and Italian kids playing the Chopin preludes in 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 houses in Italy in the thirties. You know what I mean? Bullshit. What makes a movie is the is the essence of the story. And the uh, fugitive, the, the reading the fugitive and seeing was a huge lesson to me in screenwriting. It, it, then I realized it was a magnificent script. It just wasn't written as a literary thing it was written as did this is how this movie's going to work and it did
0: well okay so if we step slightly outside of the realm of uh of masters of the universe and uh and captain america i mean i've noticed i mean you've really flourished in the world of uh television obviously and tv movies i mean so i guess i'm just kind of curious i mean do, do you prefer writing and directing and working on uh on you know films that are meant for television or i mean do you do you approach a a you know feature length film the same way as you would a television movie well, like how does that work
3: it's a very simple story let me see if i can get the timing right in about in the in the early 90s i wrote three things i wrote an adaptation for s features i wrote an adaptation of an off broadway play called beirut which was about, uh, and I uh, wrote it, rewrote it, and called it Daybreak. Um, And it was about resistance fighters in a fascist America. You can see my theme here. At the time of a plague, so, you know, somewhat topical. I wrote that as a feature for Atlantic Pictures, I forget who. I wrote an adaptation of Dean Kuntz's Intensity, or developed Dean Kuntz's Intensity as a feature, and also a third one. There was a third one that I developed as a feature. I'm forgetting exactly who it is right now. And they all, within a space of a few years, got made on television. And I had at that point been writing features for many years, and all of which except for Captain America had not gotten made, right? So these three things I write for features get made on TV and all do very well. They're all, you know, they all work out. And Daybreak had Cuba Gooding Jr. and Intensity was a huge hit on Fox. as a miniseries. And the other one was another, maybe another Dean Kuntz thing, Mr. Martin. No, it was something else. Anyway. And they all got made on TV in the space of a year, and they all did well, and they flourished, and people wanted to hire me, and it was like suddenly I was not scrambling anymore, and, and I just, and I suddenly the, the the clouds parted, and I went, oh my God, I get the message. I'm a television writer. This is where I'm. This is where I've landed, and this is it. Just felt completely right, and I lost all interest in writing features at that point. It's very interesting. I was in an airplane on the way to Toronto on the way to go direct the script for a, um, a, a television movie that I'd written with Christine Lottie, one that I really loved called uh, the, uh, Judgment Day. And I was sitting and I'd just written a script, a feature script for New Line. And I sit into my seat on business class, because i got to fly your business class, because that's the union deal. And sitting across from me is my executive from New Line, Richard Saperstein, reading my script. That was his airplane reading. And we smiled at each other and we said, this is awkward. And I faced forward and I realized my two lives, my future life, which had gone on for about 10 years at that point, and my new life in television were just like they crossed each other in the ocean going in different directions. And I felt this enormous sense of I'm off, I landed where I'm supposed to be. And I never looked back. And I have not stopped working really since then. And before that, it was always a struggle. I've done two things in TV. I love doing true crime because... And I I started doing it. I did my first one in 1998. Actually, no, no, no. It came out, I actually started in like 96. Um, and, uh, And I love it because it's human behavior at its extreme on display. It's like normal people doing insane shit. You know what I mean? There but for the grace of God. Oh, my God, any of us could be pushed that far. I love that. And I love doing that. And I've also created a bunch of series. Um, I've worked in uh, series equally you know I've worked on uh, stuff I've created on my own and stuff that I've I mean I loved I don't know if you as a genre person watched Legends of the Seeker but that's like one of my favorite things I've ever worked on you were too old for it at the time but um, or I don't know maybe not maybe it wasn't your show but I loved working on that and I loved working on Perception and Brothers and Sisters I, I have a wide range of stuff I'm interested in but as far as your question I, I you know the other day about a month ago an idea for a feature floated into my head and I'm I'm going to sit and noodle with it a bit, but I haven't really thought about it in decades. It's just not, it just didn't, it wasn't where my destiny lay.
0: Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because I remember watching uh, Somewhere Between uh, when when that premiered. Uh Uh-huh. in uh, in the summer of 2017. I mean, and yes. Paula Patton, I've always enjoyed Paula Patton. I think she's yes. a, an amazing actress. But uh, yeah, that was really cool, uh, you know, to, to see that one when that one uh, was, was on television. And, you know, it's interesting because I think anymore, not just for, I mean, and if I'm completely wrong in this, please let me know, but it seems like anymore, especially nowadays due to the uh, the pandemic shutdown that we've had, it seems like working in television is, almost preferred by, by audiences nowadays thanks to a lot of these uh streaming services and whatnot. I mean Well what
3: at this point, what's the difference between yeah, t- television exactly. and movies? Because nobody's yeah. the, uh, nobody's I mean, how do you know an Emmy from an Oscar? Exactly. I've seen yeah. all the movies this year. I haven't been in a theater. I've seen all the I've seen every, everything on T V. So I don't know I don't know how they decide which gets nominated for which. I'm not even kidding.
0: Well, even my wife, I was talking about this the other day with my wife. She actually has gotten to the point, I mean, we have kids now and everything like that. She actually prefers picking up a television show and watching an episodic television show as opposed to sitting down and and viewing a film. And obviously, you know, she has her reasons, as do other people. But it's really interesting nowadays. I mean, if you look at a lot of uh, teenagers and just, you know, young adults in general, the idea of sitting down for an entire movie is almost kind of... uh, you can't even fathom it anymore it seems like people prefer an episodic television show and even if it is going to be a movie we like that the the idea and the comfort of okay we can watch 30 minutes tonight and then watch another 30 minutes tomorrow night yeah i know i know what you
3: mean i know what <laughs> yeah. you mean absolutely absolutely yeah well my wife and i love to commit to a series and just hang in for we this is interesting i'm a huge fan of the of the of Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, I read you know George R. R. Martin. I read every word of it. I ate it up. I, it was one of my favorite books of all time. Absolutely up there with War, Lord Lord of the Rings and War and Peace. You know, is my favorite books and and I and I think it's the mashup of the two. And um and I uh, I refused to see the show. I was like my kids were like you have to see it, Dad. I know we love the books too. I said no. I don't want I don't want their images in my head. I want mine. I don't want, I don't want, I know my CRC, I see my everything, I don't want to see theirs, I want to see mine, my mine, mine. And my son's like, no, dad, I'm telling you, it's really good, you're going to love it. No, absolutely not. And then, the so they went through with it six seasons, and the last season's coming up, whatever the season, the last season was. And it was like three, a month away, right? And my wife and I looked at each other and we said, fuck, let's just do it. So we binged all of the seasons in two weeks. Eight eight hours at a time sometimes. We would just sit there in our living room with blankets across our knees and order Indian food and watch entire seasons in a day. And it was a fantastic experience to see that whole epic in a few weeks. You know? Yeah. It was fantastic. And my kids were right and it was awesome. You know, I'm glad I did that. Have it's you
0: amazing. have you and your watched, uh, excuse me, have you and your wife watched uh the go on if i a slight little tangent, but have you guys watched uh, Your Honor? on Showtime.
3: No, is it good?
0: It's amazing. It's amazing. I will watch
3: it's, it. Yeah.
0: So, well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Obviously I want to be respectful of your time and I appreciate you, uh, sitting down with me and, and, and talking as, as long as you did with me, uh, about, these, uh, about these silly little films. Um, uh, like you said, it uh, y- you can, as I told you earlier, uh, when I, uh, when I wrote you, you can rest assured that, uh, these films have, uh, have made an impact on me, so so thank you very I'm much.
3: Very very glad, and I um I I just want to end by saying I remember my time at Canon only with great fondness. It was it was a source of many great stories. Menachem and Yoram, in spite of things I've said about them, were were generous in spirit in their in their in their willingness to just take make tons of movies right and just hire tons of people and make tons of movies and just put stuff out there, you know? And that yeah. you have to thank them for. And for a young screenwriter who wasn't getting stuff produced to just be in the game and, and, and have and see stuff made was was absolutely thrilling. I wouldn't have missed one second of it for anything. And I especially would not have missed getting to know the amazing and wonderful Albert Pune. So um, thank you. Thank you so much for your interest in all of this.